This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Brian Rennie about his new book, An Ethology of Religion and Art, Belief as Behavior. Brian is Professor Emeritus of Religion and Philosophy at Westminster College. This book examines the relationship between art and religion from a variety of perspectives, demonstrating the importance of an integrated study. Brian, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Caleb. Thanks. Of course. You know, this book, you, you really... Uh, just talk about religion and art from from so many different perspectives. It's uh, really just a, uh, you know, it, it, it's a it's a book that you you, ju- you just delve into so many different aspects um, of your work, and it's clear that you've spent a long time thinking about these issues. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, well, <laughs> the first question that I'm always asked in America is about my accent, and uh, so I'll get that out of the way. I was actually born in Scotland, um, but my parents moved to the northeast of England when I was four, and then I went back to university in Edinburgh when I was 18. So my accent is is actually more northeast English, but with certain bits of Scottish thrown into it. <laughs> so that's the accent. So, so that's me. And as I say, I went to university in Edinburgh, where I always studied religious studies because the phenomenon of religions always fascinated me. Um, you know, I was kind of a child of the 60s. At the same time as we were all rejecting Christianity and institutional religion, there were Harry Krishna dancing in every airport in the world. And, you know, the Beatles were going off and meditating with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. So I was kind of fascinated by religious behavior. Uh, And neither pro nor anti, of course, you know, I've always hated dogmatism and um, self-righteousness, but I wanted to find out why people behaved religiously. And this made for something of a checkered career because uh, when I first went to university to study religion, um, it was mainly a school of divinity. Most of my colleagues were committed members of the church and were constantly trying to convert me, which I, was, I wasn't interested in that. Um, I wanted to know how it worked. 
And over the years, I developed an understanding of religion as being potentially um, very useful in human society. But um, at this present moment in history, finding itself in a very difficult position where it was more abused than used, as, as any power, I think, can be used and abused. Um, and so when I did my PhD, I started to study this um, Romanian-American guy, Mircea Eliade. Um, initially, I wanted to find out what on earth he meant by um, archetypal intuitions. What's an archetypal intuition, you know? Um, and then when I read him uh, as much as I could in both English and French, I, I don't really read Romanian, which he wrote in originally. I found that other scholars absolutely disagree with my interpretation of him. And I thought, you know, who have they been reading? So I came to America to study Eliade more closely. He died by that time, so I never met him personally. But um, that led to, to my first book, which was on Eliade's understanding of religion. And as far as this particular book is concerned, how did you come to write it? Uh, obviously, it, you know, it, it seems based on what you just said, it seems, you know, like it's it's in many ways uh, the summation of a lot of things that you've been examining. Um, but, you know, what was there a particular moment in time where you thought this particular book needs to be written and, and, and Ooh, here's why? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eliade himself had, uh, well, actually, it was an editor called Diane Apostolos Capadonna uh, at um, George Washington who edited all of Eliade's writings on religion and art in a book called um, Art, Creativity, and the Sacred, I think. And um, that might have led to me studying religion and art, but it didn't, actually. Um, what happened was one of these um, coincidences where somebody at my college taught a course on religion and art, and she left and went elsewhere. And um, the department asked me to teach a course on religion and art. And I was initially terrified. <laughs> I mean, that's not too strong a word. But, you know, the thing is, religion is a matter of great contest at the moment. What is religion? How does it work? What does it really mean? How do we define it? And art is every bit as much contested. So I thought, no, I've got two things that I, I don't understand that I have to try and explain. Um, and so I started studying as best I could because I believed that the course was too valuable to lose. Um, and I tried to come to an understanding of it. And it was in that process, mainly when I came across the work of Ellen Dissanayake, who writes on the ethology of art, art as behavior. And that's when I thought this book has got to be written. Um, because it seemed to me that nobody was really applying this ethological, which means the study of human behavior as a, as a sort of biologically um, inherited behavior and evolved behavior. Nobody was applying this kind of study of art to the study of religion. And yet it seemed to be obviously uh, required because you can't sort of bring a piece of religion into class Religion is obviously a matter of human behavior. Um, if, if you want to demonstrate religion, you have to demonstrate somebody behaving religiously. And so it seemed clear that this kind of ethological approach, which studies behavior, 
um, which had been already very successfully applied to art, had to be applied to religion. And it was at that point when I started making notes and developing my um, lectures in the course of, of making this course of studies that I realized that there was a book here um, for which I believe there's significant need. So part of the, the beginning of the book, you look at uh, some of the scientific approaches to religion, like cognitive science of religion. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about uh, some of those approaches to religion and some of the the the, the, the issues with, with uh, this approach. Yes. Well, the ethological study of art is, is based in a scientific study of human behaviors as evolved behaviors, which have been adaptations that have been useful in our sort of Pleistocene ancestry. And it seemed to me clear that the same um, applied to religion. And so I looked more closely at the cognitive science of religion, because cognitive science is about cognitive evolution how our understanding, our perception, our cognition of the world uh, and the environment in which we live and operate has evolved. And there's quite a lot about this. And it, it amazed me that none of these cognitive scientists of religion were taking this ethological approach of studying religion as behavior, and absolutely none of them were looking at art. But it seems to be fairly obvious that religion is sort of built out of art. You know, is a book art? Well, yeah, books are art. Singing, music, dance, ceremony, these are all art. You take them away, there is no religion. So why, it seemed to me, was nobody studying the ethology of religion and art? And... Um, I had to start with the scientific uh, studies. And as far as I could see, in the cognitive science of religion, nothing was being done in terms of analyzing human responses to art media. And, you know, please bear in mind that when I say art, I mean in the broadest possible sense. You know, of course, I involve all forms of art, music, dance, poetry, architecture, um, dressing. Uh, ritualization. So it's a very, very broad field, and it, it should have been done in the scientific studies of religion, but it was, to me, shocking by its absence. Yeah, so so what does that look like then without, you know, if you're ne neglecting art, what does the scientific study of religion look like, or what is uh, the focus on? Science of religion, yeah. It's, it's mainly talking about um, you know, it becomes an increasingly specialized field, of course. There are people who are doing actual neurological studies. and uh, right, That's what my imagine, uh, MRIs and things like yeah, that. Yeah, MRIs, fMRIs, all of this sort of thing, which parts of the brain are being activated. You know, it was sort of pioneered by De Quilly and Newberg, who claimed that they'd found a god spot in the brain that lit up when um, Franciscans and, and Buddhists did their meditation and, and prayer. Um but it wasn't looking at how we interact with events and artifacts that normally be considered, um, you know, a form of art. It was looking at things like um, agency detection devices. You know, there's a famous um, element of it, the HADD, the Hyperactive Agency Detection Device. 
And they argue, uh, and that, to a certain extent, I believe rightly, that human beings have um, a module in their brain. You know, it often inv invokes mental modularity, which is itself a very contested question. But let's just go with it for the moment that we have a specialized module in the brain for for um, identifying agency, things that act of their own accord and have desires of their own. And that agency detection device in human beings is hyperactive because we're far better off to assume that that rustle in the woods is a bear rather than assuming that that rustle in the woods is just leaves in the wind. You know, the, the, the former might be slightly embarrassing if we're wrong. The other one could be fatal. And so our agency detection device became uh, hyperactive. It's that sort of thing. And um, the intensity of ritual. Um, how do we react to intense ritual? Now, nobody seemed to be connecting the studies that have been done on art to the studies that were being done on ritual, despite the fact that they were using the same language. Uh, I mentioned Ellen Dissanayake earlier on. Uh, she talks specifically about ritual and ceremony as art. Um, but the, the problem is, of course, that, that religion is mainly conceived of as a matter of belief an internal state. And I gradually came to realize, of course, that well, as well as internal states being very difficult to access, you can't find them. You know, there, there's a very well-known book, uh, Jason Sloan, on theological incorrectness. If you really study what people believe based on their behavior, they don't seem to believe what they say they believe. It's very difficult to access real beliefs. And I realized, of course, that belief is as it manifests itself in the world, is actually verbal behavior. You don't know what people believe, but you know what they say they believe, right? And sure, we shouldn't be studying religion as a matter of belief, as in an internal state. We should be studying religion as a matter of behavior, how people behave, including, of course, verbal behavior. Now, now at this point, I have to you know, interrupt myself and say, I know behaviorism, has become uh, something of a dirty word in in psychology, but that's because the those people who were called behaviorists wanted to do away with entirely mental states and any kind of mental reference, and that was a terrible mistake. We need these references to mental states and these ideas of internal um, predispositions. But before behaviorism got itself into trouble and was largely rejected, it was in fact largely accepted. And most of behaviorism is still really going on. We study how people behave much more than trying to um, imagine what they think. So how it looks, the scientific study of religion is working on these things, which I think are still fundamentally caught up in the idea of religion as belief. Whereas the ethology of art doesn't talk about what artists or their audiences believe or intend. They talk about how they behave and why they behave this way. A concept that you that you spend uh, quite a bit of time looking at, and I think I think this is a great place to look at because it, it certainly is where art and religion have a very clear overlap, uh, which is just the role of beauty. So mm -hmm. you know, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the role of beauty in religion because it it's very clear 
that beauty is on some level maybe the goal of art if there is to, to you know you know at least some art you know art is trying to be beautiful uh not all art of course some arts is trying is shocking uh but what's the what do you see as the role of beauty in religion and art well beauty is another one of these very very contested words and um in the sort of contemporary atmosphere of anti-essentialism you know, um, the the idea of beauty is very often roundly rejected, and a lot of um, aesthetic philosophers just won't use the word. They think beauty is is a reification; it doesn't exist per se. And to a certain extent, I agree with that. But you have to bear in mind that words don't sort of have real meaning. There's no um, the, the God's English dictionary up in the sky that defines the real meaning of every word. And all words, I think of them like Russian dolls. You know, they're nested homonyms. So you've got art inside of art inside of art and beauty inside of beauty. So with that warning, when I talk about beauty, this is the way that I've sort of elected to use the word. And to me... The one thing that's constant in art uh, and overlaps in religion is that it seeks, at least, to get your attention. And beauty, then, by my definition, the way I use the word, is that which gets your attention. Um, and, you know, a Lucian Freud painting, I don't know if you know Lucian. See and Freud, but his work always looks like rotting flesh and stuff like this. You know, uh, he's you, one of my favorite painters. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, well, I that's a good him. example, yeah. isn't it? Because it certainly gets your attention, but most people would not call it beautiful. But by my lights, I have to say it is beautiful because it gets your attention. Now, of course, this raises a problem. Well, so does a train wreck. A train wreck's going to get your attention, uh, and so everything. You know, there's beautiful in art, I would say, it gets your attention, but not everything that gets your attention is beautiful in art. But there are reasons, I think, why our attention is seized by certain things. And and here's the rub, you know, given the analysis of art as a human adaptation, which has been helpful and contributory in our sort of Pleistocene past before um, we lived in, in permanent habitations. Um, there must be a reason why we pay attention to certain things, why certain things get our attention. And indeed, there is. I think that the ethologists of art have demonstrated that things get our attention because there's a, a payoff in attending to these things. By attending to these things, it makes, for example, socially important events, um, births, deaths, and marriages, um, more um, appealing and more regularly and more persistently uh, and, and more, um, what would the word be, consistently performed. And so there are reasons why we pay attention to the things. And as evolution works over evolutionary time, we start to pay attention, and, and this is important, I think, to the right things. We do have a tendency to pay attention to the right thing. And those stories which teach us something about human nature and human interactions, um, Brian Boyd's work, he's a, a scholar of Nabokov, 
he's very done some wonderful analyses of why we pay attention to stories because these stories give us something that is worth our attention. Uh, and then my idea then is that beauty, by definition, is that which gets your attention. And it isn't just shallow, superficial beauty. It's deeper beauty because it's worth attending to. It's worth paying attention to this. Uh, and so, of course, beauty in art then becomes beauty in religion. The distinction I make is it's, it's relatively easy to have a singular art piece or even a singular genre of art. But when it comes to religion, what we have is an extended matrix of interrelated art forms and art pieces, music, dance, architecture, vestments, uh, song, and of course, narrative, uh, written narrative very particularly, which um, forms a constellation on the same theme. So you can imagine, of course, all Christian art is Christian art. Why? Because it's Christian. It's on the same theme. You know, some of it is in immediately recognizable as, say, a crucifixion. Some of it is less recognizable as, say, uh, you know, uh, the narrative of Balaam's ass and things like this. But it all comes into the same constellation. And um, that's where it begins to differ. That's where beauty is no longer just beauty. It's something else. It's a compounded ascription of beauty. And that is how I use the word sacred. That's sacrality. And so note, of course, I don't mean by this something that exists independently, that has its own ontology that's, that's out there. It's definitely an ascription, but it's an ascription of something real because it has to be worth paying attention to. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, foreshadowed by my next question, but just, you know, about the, then understanding sacred in art and religion. So, so sacred is kind of like, you know, beauty uh, times 10, you know, it's the most, sacred is the most beautiful and it's so beautiful that it's no longer just existing in the realm of art. It's now existing in this other domain of religion. Is that, so, you know, maybe sort of accurate or? Yes, yes, that's certainly how I see it. Um, you know, these words become more and more and more contested. Um, in, in religious studies nowadays, there's a large number of people who just won't accept this word sacred at all um, and argue that it's got no meaning except what is foisted on it by the scholar. Uh, and it, it, it necessarily implies an independent ontology. Well, uh, you know, I would argue that, no, like beauty, you know, you can't say that beauty itself exists as an independent ontology by itself. It doesn't. It's an ascription, but it does have some corresponding objective characteristics. And similarly, the sacred is an ascription. But as, as you nicely said, it's like beauty times 10. Um, it, it's, and, and as I looked at this, I kept finding these writers. And the best example definitely was Naveed Kermani's uh, God is Beautiful. Kermani is a, a German scholar of Islam, and um, he pulled together all these wonderful narratives of people being so struck by the sheer beauty of the Quran that they dropped down dead. 
you know, there are not many who drop down dead, but a lot of them fall into swoons and stuff like this. But it very much focused this idea of how people perceive their own religious tradition as beautiful, as as immensely beautiful, as super beautiful. Uh, and I think that that is a very good way of understanding the sacred. I'm I'm reminded of uh, this experience that I had. I, I saw I went to La Sagrada Familia, uh, which is the uh, the church that has been still being built uh, by the the Spanish architect and, and Gaudi. Antonio Gaudi. Yeah. And I I was listening to like the the audio tour as I was walking through it, and it's you know they have tons of quotes about what Gaudi's attempts were. You know, obviously he died long before they finished it, but they're still executing his vision, and just about how much how important the experience of beauty was for him in terms of thinking about like he wanted people to have this sense of beauty not not to be so overwhelmed that it takes them out of the experience and then overshadows the religious experience but like almost you know trying to achieve this perfect sense of beauty that you know that was you know ineffable indescribable for him through all through the way that the light comes in and using yeah. all of these different things and and you know that place that you know really i think you know churches especially they just highlight how you know the intersection of of uh you know of religion and art and, and how important a, you know a beautiful church or a beautiful temple or a beautiful uh you know and any kind of religious place will really make you feel 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 the presence i i think this is where skill comes into it gaudi had great skill at designing these wonderfully sort of amorphous weirdly shaped things that conjure up a sense and and I think that's where uh, you can see some of the practical import of this. We human beings uh, don't operate so much on instinct. Um, we operate more on wit and innovation, and we need to learn how to behave. You know, it doesn't matter where you put a dog, it's going to sniff butts and pee on trees. I suppose that's a male dog. Uh, but... Um, human beings behave differently in different environments and we have to know how to behave and so we are from the moment that we're born evolved to pay attention to displays of skill now skill i realized becomes a very complex um uh, phenomenon normally when we say skill we think of the skill of production what skill did it take gaudi to have to produce this building but but all of it is skillful. There's a skill of reception as well. You know, uh, Chinese poetry may be very, very beautiful, but I don't really appreciate it. I lack that skill. Uh, and there's also a skill of conception. You have to think about what's worth um, making in, in the real art pieces. But by attending to genuinely skillful, um, beautiful objects, we can learn uh, about skill in general, skill in general being, you know, the ability to produce a desired end with less resources. Um, you know, I can do a bit of woodwork, but a skilled carpenter can do it in a quarter of the time, you know, um, time is a resource. Um, and so by attending to these skillful things, we learn better how to behave skillfully. And, um, that doesn't just mean, it does mean, you know, that we can learn how to do woodwork like a good carpenter, how to write as a, as a good writer, 
but it it means more how to live as a human being. It, it takes skill to be a good human being. And so you'll notice, of course, that all of these definitions are interrelated. As I change my understanding of art, I have to change my understanding of religion, of beauty, of the sacred, of skill, and ultimately uh, the skill of being a human being. Um, and I, that's where I come to wisdom as the sort of ultimate form of skill. Um, the skill of being a really, really, really good guy. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and I found this sort of thing again in all of the world's religions, in, in the Chinese concept of the chutsu, the, the, the noble person, which just as in English, you know, noble man started as meaning an aristocrat, the guy with the biggest sword and the most money was a nobleman. But now noble means somebody of, of sort of morally superior behavior. And it's exactly the same in Chinese with the Chun Tzu, which originally meant the son of a prince, and now comes to mean, uh, in many translations of the I Ching, the, the superior man. Pardon the sexism. It says so in the old copies of the, of the I Ching. Um, <clears throat> so this idea of wisdom as the sort of ultimate skill, which can be induced in us by paying attention to skilled events and artifacts associated in a constellation as a religious tradition all makes perfect sense. Especially <laughs> when you take into account something that's largely missing from Protestant Christianity, which is the, the notion of theosis uh, and even the um, imitatio dei, that's to say, of becoming godlike oneself. The Eastern Orthodox Church says that God became human, that humans might become as God. Uh, and uh, that's something that seems to have fallen out in modern Western, largely Protestant Christianity. The idea that um, religion is meant to improve us, potentially to an almost godlike degree. And, you know, all these exemplars are held up to it, uh, of these saints uh, and holy men and enlightened beings um, who, again, seem to share this characteristic of um, psychobiological homeostasis. I love that expression. <laughs> it, it just means, you know, not having to change your mind and not having to change your behavior. Homeostasis is a, is a biological concept of, of self-regulation. And I think that that's what we're doing. We're trying to induce psychobiological homeostasis through our interaction with religious traditions, which are built out of interrelated, stylistic related pieces of art. You, you mentioned his work at the beginning, Mircea Eliade, uh, and his influence on you. Uh, and he's also someone that you, that you engage with, you know, to, to examine this, this discussion of art, art and religion. So, you know, I was, I was wondering if you could just share with our listeners a little bit about who, who he was. Uh, and and some of his uh, his major insights that are are relevant to this particular study. Yeah, well, Eliadi was uh, a Romanian, um, born in nineteen seventeen, I believe, nineteen oh seven, and he was a philosopher first and foremost. But um, he came to the conclusion that Western philosophy was was um, provincial, that Western philosophy was all about Western philosophy, and that we were missing the um, 
input from other coaches. And so he went out to India um, for a couple of years in the early 1930s uh, to study Indian philosophy in order to deprovincialize the West. And um, I don't think he was very successful in that particular uh, undertaking, but he came back with an analysis of yoga, um, which he then published as his first major work, which was translated into French and then English, um, Yoga, Immortality and Freedom. Um, unfortunately, he had a, a, a checkered political career. He gave... Um, open and written support to this group, the Legion of the Archangel Michael, in 1936, 1937. And the Legion of the Archangel Michael became later known as the Iron Guard and were definitely responsible for some terrible anti-Semitic atrocities. But as far as I can see, he was no, no longer attached to them at this time, and I don't think it affected his work at all. He never forswore his allegiance, unfortunately, for reasons that are complicated to understand. But he went on to write many, many books about religion, in which, as far as I can see, he puts forward this concept of the sacred as being um, an attribution that certain people make to things. Your sacred is not the same as my sacred, but it's still really your sacred. Uh, you actually perceive it in the world. And, of course, latterly, I realized that this was very similar to the concept of beauty. Your beauty might not be my beauty, but you see it. It's real for you. It's an actual cognition that you have. And so it seemed to me that Eliade's understanding of religion, that the sacred was manifest in actual physical phenomena, that we cognize as having sacrality, as being sacred. And he specifically says that, you know, uh, if you don't recognize it as such, it's not sacred to you, and that it is sacred to somebody else. So he must have meant that it was a sort of intentional attribution to things. And so it seemed to me that his work dovetails potentially neatly with this idea of the ethology of religion as religion as a behavior. And a, a growing number of people are realizing that the, the phenomenological approach of people like Merleau-Ponty um, does agree with um, a great deal of this ethological approach to art. Um, and so I felt it incumbent upon me to explain um, how my understanding of Eliade uh, and my understanding of the ethology of art and religion um, meshed and were not at all contradictory. Because the way that a lot of people interpret Eliade now is, is, I think, unfortunately hostile. And they would not expect him to have uh, an understanding that was um, consistent with this kind of contemporary fundamentally scientific approach to the study of religion. Um, he died in 86, and most of the um, criticisms of his work have surfaced since then. Um, and there's a, a, an ongoing battle. I think um, there is some truth to the fact, I mean, he certainly was a man of the right, which I find a little unfortunate and distasteful, but... Um, <laughs> 
it's not his politics that interests me. It's his analysis of religion, which I find to be potentially highly beneficial. It, it's pluralistic. It allows that your sacred is real and it's not my sacred. Um, it, it allows that different traditions work in similar but not the same way and that Hinduism deserves every bit as much respect as the Eastern Orthodox Christianity to which he belonged. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. And I think that that's part of the puzzle, actually, is because he was Eastern Orthodox and not particularly pious. He didn't attend church on that sort of thing, but he understood religion through the lens of Eastern Orthodoxy, which does emphasize this idea of theosis, uh, God becoming man, that man might become God. Um, so his position in my own personal experience and my own understanding of this was so important that I, I felt that I had to deal with it. Um, and so I did put in that one chapter about Eliade's understanding, but mainly as exemplary of the kind of phenomenology of religion that held sway in the 1950s through to the 1980s and showing that that older approach to religion was not fundamentally contradictory to this newer approach. So, you know, with uh, we've obviously spent a lot of time talking about, you know, concepts like you know, sacrality and, and beauty and, and looking at, at the relationship between art and, and religion. And then, and then you, you know, you, you brought up a few people whose work has helped you uh, make sense of these concepts. Uh, the latter, latter half of the book is really spent, you really spent a lot of time engaging with case studies um, and looking at, at specific examples, uh, examples, you know, in, in very early history, early human history of, of some of like the most, uh, you know, some of the most incredible early, uh, uh, you know, archeological, uh, works, works of art and, and religion found. So, uh, I was wondering if you just talk about some of these early examples of art, you know, that you'd like to share, uh, just to help, uh, listeners understand a little bit about your approach. Um, yeah, uh, the earliest monumental, um, edifice that we have at the moment is is of course this this one at um gebekli tepe I'm, i have to point out that gebekli tepe is is turkish for potbelly hill um, yeah would you would you share a little bit about because this is I, i've heard about this place before but it, and because i know people that have gotten absolutely obsessed with it i think it's also like a a place that you know people that are into into the ancient aliens Theories. Yes, that's t right. Yes, t um, tend to fix it on this place. I don't know. Yeah, why. The, the, the History <laughs> Channel likes to yeah. focus on this one as as proof of alien intervention and and super cultures that existed before um, our current um, Holocene uh, epoch. Um, well, it really is an astonishing um, edifice. Currently, I believe five uh, of these buildings have been excavated. They're roughly circular with double walls and contain usually about 18 pillars, T-shaped pillars. Two pillars are 
mountains centrally facing each other and they're surrounded by more pillars embedded into the walls. These pillars are often deeply engraved or embossed with animal uh, and sometimes hominid figures. And they date from around 10,000 years BC, um, you know, a lot older than Stonehenge and, and the like. And so the, the question is, what are they and what are they doing there? Um, there's a great deal of controversy about them. And I don't want to pretend that I've somehow unraveled the mystery. Um, I really just want to focus on the mystery. But I, it seems to me the the gentleman who has um, been in, responsible for most of the um, excavation, uh, Schmidt, uh, works for the German Archaeological Institute, and he's an excellent archaeologist. But he argues that these must be the world's first temples because um, they don't show signs of consistent habitation. That They're not habitations. People didn't live in them. Uh, they're not particularly fortifications. They're not storage units. They don't seem to have any other use. And it's long struck me as, as somewhat amusing that when an, ar an archaeologist finds something which he or she does not identify, they immediately become a cult object. You know, religion is invoked to explain everything that we don't understand. And if we don't understand it, it must be religious. And the, the simple point I'm making is, well, you know, Given our modern understanding of art, you might as well invoke art and say we don't understand it, so it's art. And while this is somewhat flippant, it's not entirely flippant. What I'm arguing is we don't really understand why people behave this way. But it's clearly the case at Gebetli Tepe that they were producing what we would recognise as art, sculpture, architecture, buildings, uh, and these engravings are clearly skilled art. And I'm trying to raise the possibility that perhaps people were just behaving that way because they felt it was the right thing to do. Was it necessarily associated with religion in the sense of belief, particularly belief in supernatural or superhuman agency? We don't know that. We can't know that. But we do know that people were behaving persistently and constantly because these places were, um, as far as we're aware, occupied and used for about 2,000 years. And as, as I say, five of them have been excavated, but ground-penetrating radar shows that there's another, I believe, another 18 of them in the vicinity that haven't been excavated. And one of the fascinating things about them is that they were apparently backfilled. They were filled with rubbish. Uh, you know, just ground dirt and broken rocks. And so, uh, uh, when they were um, finished, why? Uh, I'm suggesting that this could be seen as an artwork, that people were doing this and other people were going, wow, that's amazing. Do it again. <laughs> hey, I tell you what, we'll bring you food if you keep doing it. Because there's evidence that food was brought some distances from there and that people were not necessarily doing this for any physically um, functional reason, but just because it made them feel good. They because could have been that, ancient I, I, Burning Man. 
It could have been like ancient Burning Man or ancient Glastonbury or, you know, what, one of these music festivals where people make a pilgrimage and it's just for artistic purposes. Yeah, actually, well, that, that's exactly what I think. And, you know, one of the things that we tend to forget is just how skillful these people were. You know, by analogy, if, if Tor Heyerdahl can put together a reed boat and sail across the Atlantic, imagine what the guys back then could do, because they'd been doing it for generations and they were highly skilled, and they had every trick in the book at their command. Well, similarly, the stone workers who built Quebecli Tepe had been doing this sort of stuff for generations. As I say, the thing itself was occupied for 2,000 years, and they'd been doing stonework before that. So to assume that there was some necessarily material uh, reason why they were doing it, is not necessarily the case. To assume that there was some necessarily spiritual reason why they were doing it, well, spiritual in the sense of it makes us feel good. And think now in terms of the use of art in, um, in modern medicine. In chronic ailments and terminal ailments, people are often encouraged to use art, and there's a lot of good research that it shows that people feel as if they're doing the right thing. They feel as if they're doing what they ought to be doing, and that makes them feel better. It doesn't, in the end, of course, save their lives, but it makes them feel better. And if spirituality is seen as being a case of making us feel as if we're doing the right thing, perhaps this focus upon skilled construction just made people feel as if they were doing the right thing without any necessary um, connection to uh, a, a narrative construction of gods and superhuman beings and things like that. Now, from that point on, of course, if you say to these people, why the hell are you doing this? They're going to give you some kind of narrative construct which explains their behavior. But... Um, you know, it doesn't mean that they're actually right. I don't think most of us really know why we do the things that we do. We can oftentimes give an account of it, and, and art is a beautiful example of this. You know, it must be really annoying to artists when people say, why did you do it? Why did you do it that way? And the artist has to come up with some apparently rational explanation for why they did what they did. Um, you know, you ask most artists for an honest answer and they'll say, I don't know, it's just, it felt right. Uh, there's a wonderful interview with uh, Destabler, the, the, the artist Destabler in Diane Apostolos Capadona's book on art and religion, in which he's talking about how these pieces of clay communicate with him and, and let him know when he's doing the right thing. It's not entirely rational. So I'm just raising the possibility that a behavioral analysis of something like um, Gebesli Tepe would have people doing a lot more in terms of technology simply because it felt right to them, simply because they were exercising the skills that they developed and that that later became useful. I think I have to, at this point, um, mention Marshall Poe's theory in his um, History of Communication about how technologies are pushed from behind by pre-existing technologies and pulled from ahead by changing needs. 
uh, and say this is very similar to what I'm talking about here. You've got artists, what Poor calls tinkerers. I don't know if you remember that part of his book. These tinkerers produce the new technology, and then the new technology finds uh, a, a niche, and also the new technology changes the cultural um, understanding, the cultural values, and creates more of a, a need for itself. Now, if the the Potbelly Hill, Gebekli Tepe, was seen as the world's first installation art rather than the world's first temple. How would that change things? And I do have to say at this point, both of those things are wrong. What we're looking at here is a behaviour which is ancestral to both art and religion. It's not art, it's not religion, because both of those are things which evolve later. Uh, and then, you know, it moves on from Gebekli Tepe to other places like Chat al where these are clearly domiciles. People live there, but they decorate them very highly. They bring this art in. They, they do these skillful representations of hunting, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I'm trying to free us from the sort of tyranny of stuff like um, sympathetic magic. If if you drew draw a painting of a man... Um, killing a bison with a spear, you're hoping that that will... Uh, you know, why do we need that? It's art. People do it because it feels good and, and because other people like them to do it. If we could look at things that way, then that would at least go some distance to justifying this analysis of religion as an extended matrix of, of interrelated art pieces, which people do because it makes them feel as if they're doing the right thing. Uh, and that, of course, shows both the potential and, and the potential damage of religion. As we all know, you know, the, the potential downside of religion is massive self-righteousness, um, persistent behavior in the face of, of um, the the collapse of your society, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's why people can, can, can go wrong with it. However, of course, what we need is persistent behavior, but persistent sustainable behavior that isn't going to lead to us all dying. Um, and we need to listen to, to pay attention to the skillfully worked um, product of, of art including the skillfully worked products of religious traditions. You'll notice in all of this that his, this has got nothing to do with the historical accuracy of religious traditions. Um, but what it has a lot to do with is, is divination. And this is another difficult area. Um, I don't know if you want me to go on. Uh, go for it. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I think. Uh, because if what I say has any um, value to it, then we should expect that um, people are looking to religious behavior um, to find out how to do the right thing and what is the right thing to do. Uh, and indeed, that's exactly what we find. Uh, divination, and they, this is quite peculiar. Um, there was a large encyclopedia of religion, the Hastings Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, produced in the early decades of the 20th century. And it had 56 pages of divination and large parts in the other traditions on divination in those traditions. 
And then when Eliardi did the Macmillan Encyclopedia Religion in in 1987, there was only five or six pages left on divination. It's peculiar the way that it's fallen out. And <clears throat> one of the first things you learn if you ever do a course on, on the biblical prophets is that prophecy isn't about seeing the future. Prophecy is fundamentally about responding in the present. How should I act? Not what is going to happen, but how should I act? Now, of course, that involves, to a certain extent, some uh, reference to oracles. If you do this, it will have very bad results. If you do this, it will have very good results. So there's always a certain oracular part to it. But fundamentally, what divination's about is, is how should I behave? What should I do? What's the right thing for me to do? And if you study um, the sort of history of divination, you find out that is exactly the case. And that people are using specific reference to artistically performed um, ceremonies, rituals, events, artistic objects, and interpreting those objects so as to guide their own behavior. This is, this is the right thing to do. And that fits perfectly with this analysis of, of artistic behavior leading to religious behavior, um, that by attending to, to matters of skill, we um, find out what is the right thing to do. And of course, this, this remains entirely subjective. It's, does it feel like the right thing to do? Um, hopefully, it also would have a sustainable component and because this is based on evolutionary theory, it makes perfect sense. You know, what's, what's evolution all about? The survival of the species. Uh, to a certain extent, the survival of the individual so that he or she can reproduce and help the species to survive, but mainly uh, about the, the survival of the species. And so hopefully, if you find that these persistent and sustainable modes of behavior, it will be persistent in the long term. And that, I think, goes some way to explaining the, the universal moral components to religious traditions. Um, I think that justice itself is a matter of sustainability. Um, one cannot persist in unjust action. Um, because the oppressed will rise up, etc., uh, etc., et um, and so justice is is a matter of sustainability. And these religious traditions show paths towards that. Now, I'm not saying any one of them has got it right, or even that any one of them is any better than any other. But I'm saying that by looking at them this way, you can see how they work, why they do what they do, why people. Um, assist in, in behaving religiously and why, uh, as I believe, people will persist in behaving religiously. I think the secularization hypothesis doesn't have much chance. Uh, you know, We see nowadays, of course, the, the rise of the nuns and uh, it's become you know, its own um, uh, spiritual but not religious, SBNR. Uh, it, its own um, area of study. Now, there are more and more people who are avowedly spiritual because they're looking for the right thing to do. And if it's stroking crystals or going to kirtans or meditating, they're doing what they feel to be the right thing to do, the right way to behave. 
um, but not being involved in institutional religious tradition. Uh, and again, I think that this uh, can, to some extent, be explained by this kind of ethological analysis of behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think, you know, so often there's this kind of um, this dichotomy set up between religion and science with the idea that religion is just like the repository of all that's irrational and science is reason. And of course, and, you know, we're naturally being led towards, you know, reason where I think what you're saying is like, no, there's actually a, there actually is a very rational reason for people to participate in religious activity in the sense that it feels good and it brings people together and it has all of these other additional uh, benefits and that, you know, the problem is when you, when you eradicate, when you try and eradicate the world of all that is, that is, you know, beautiful or feels spiritually meaningful, then, you know, you end up flattening life a little bit and then it, it doesn't actually elevate life. It leaves something, something to be wanting a little, um, that's at least my sense, sense of it. Like I, I wouldn't call myself a person that's like, I'm not a, 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 a devout, devoutly religious person. But, you know, as you know, when I went to college, I was like, I'm never going to be religious again. And then yeah. slowly but surely, I was like, well, you know, there's it's nice to to have the, the yearly rituals. It's nice to do these things because they're beautiful and they, they feel good. Yeah. And, you know, you know, the old adage that there are no atheists in foxholes. That's that's a, you know, a very shorthand way of putting it. But I think we all know that when we come under certain uh, pressures, the the pressure to behave religiously is very powerful and it kind of works to a certain extent it does make us feel a little bit better about death and a little bit more assured about something as difficult as marriage <laughs> and um a little bit more confident to deal with the birth of a newborn um that said of course it is still pretty irrational the the way that we identify um, that which is worthy of attention is very non-rational, um, but but it's increasingly accepted now that our emotional intelligence is the very basis of our intelligence, and that our rational intelligence grows out of that. Um, I'm a great fan of science. Uh, yeah, I think science is absolutely wonderful, and it's it's a it's a great methodology for generating reliable knowledge, but. We don't have enough information to know rationally uh, exactly what is the right way to behave, how to interact with our fellow human beings, and what is the right thing to do. We need a certain amount of emotional, non-rational input. And that's where I think art engages the rational, the irrational, I mean, and, and gives us a sense of the right way to behave. Now, we're all aware of the fact that this can be abused. As again, you know, the Nazis and uh, the socialists, the communists in Russia used their art forms for um, propaganda. Um, so it can be abused, but that doesn't mean that it can't be used for good. And we, if we can understand this better and use it better, allow people to perform their own rituals, their own ceremonies, recognize that it makes them feel better. We might be, be able to, you know, figure out what kind of ceremonies work best and what kind of beliefs and rituals uh, are, in fact, the most genuinely sustainable for the whole species. Um, so, 
rather than making a dichotomy of rational and irrational, I'd say, you know, they both have their place. They're both very important. Yeah. So, you know, obviously the, the, you, there's so much that you talk about. We, we, you know, we haven't had, had time to, to get to, to everything. Uh, so, you know, I, I should say to listeners that there, there are other case studies that you look at too in the book. Um, you look at uh, biblical prophecy, uh, you look at art and ancient and religious traditions, uh, you know, non-Western as well as Western. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just for, for listeners, uh, you know, sort of to, to conclude, you know, are there any major takeaways or things that you just want to like leave, leave listeners thinking about just as far as how to think about the relationship, uh, between art and religion? And obviously, uh, you know, I, I encourage, uh, listeners to to go and pick up the book as well too if uh if they want to know more about those particular examples too yeah well you mentioned biblical prophecy you know i think that's a really excellent example of the transition from sort of performed religion where there's an increase in uh, agreement that the prophets really were street performers they weren't just literary prophets who wrote books. They went out and they built things and and performed and danced and sang and did all sorts of things. But but in the biblical prophets, you can see this transition from performative prophecy. And remember, by prophecy, I mean not seeing the future, but telling people how to behave in the present, to literary prophecy. And that is something that I really would encourage people to think about. Um, I came to call it graphomancy. You know, all forms of divination are usually called mancy tasse or mancy is tea leaves and and um oneromancy in interpretation dreams. Well graphomancy is interpreting writing to find out what's the right thing to do. And just think how many people do that now. We don't think of it as being a form of interacting with an art piece in order to divine the best behavior. But how many people flip open the Bible and look for life advice or the Quran or the Tao Te Ching? You know, graphomancy is going on all of the time. And it's become our, I would say, major form of religious behavior. Um, and it's unfortunately led to an elevation of the written word so that we think that the, the written word logocentrism, as uh, postmoderns will happy to call it. Um, so think about what's actually going on now and the way people behave. Uh, and you can see that this analysis of religion as being built out of art with a point of making people feel as if they're doing the right thing and making them thus persistent and hopefully sustainable in their behaviors is going on all of the time around us. I, I think that's that's so true. I was just, you know, what, what made me think about is, is you know, for, for a, a significant period of time, I, I would go to the my my personal rabbi, um, you know, in my in my temple, and I would I would ask, I would tell him, say, I'm dealing with this problem, and then he would pull a quote. And you'd be like, think about this quote, write it down. And then I would look at, put the quote in my pocket, look at it occasionally. I, you know, I don't believe, I'm not, a, I'm not a big believer type, but it's just, there's something that, that was very, uh, you know, very gratifying on a, on, a, yeah. on a number of levels. It really helps us work through these existential problems. Um, on the simplest level, it might be a coin toss. You know, you toss the coin 
and it comes down heads and you go, no, I didn't want to do that anyway. It helps you make your mind up. And when it's something as complex as, say, the I Ching, um, which has all these you know very complex in interpretations uh, that helps you decide how to behave. And um, it's important to us, of course, human beings, to feel that we're behaving in the right way. And um, it's not surprising when you think about it, you know, the level of anxiety and mental illness uh, in this astonishingly complex world that we now live in, um, where we're constantly faced with alternative forms of behavior. Maybe I should move house. Maybe I should get a different job. Am I doing the right thing here? Maybe I should treat this person differently, that, that we need guidance. And I don't think the guidance is coming from a superhuman intelligence, but I think that, that the guidance is there in the form of beautiful and sacred things which attract our attention. And Spinoza said it the best for me. I've always loved this. You know, he, he referred to Deus sive natura, God or nature. And so it doesn't really matter whether you think of it as coming from God or whether you think of it as coming from nature. But if we've evolved to pay attention to the right things, to recognize a kind of agency in the environment, and notice by agency, I don't necessarily mean intentional agency. It doesn't have to be intelligent, but the environment is certainly an agent. It, it will do what it wants to do, you know. It doesn't want to do anything. It's just a natural system, but it's going to behave the way it behaves. Um, it's more powerful than we are. It's an agent, and we have to listen to it. And so whether you think of Deus sive natura, God or nature, um, I, it would... I think be beneficial to us to listen very carefully to what's being said uh, and to what's being said in the most beautiful and attractive and artistic ways. Now, this can't be foolproof, of course. All of these products of evolution have only a tiny, tiny positive um, uh, excess of the negative. But if there's any excess then it's going to be gradually selected for. Like sexual behavior, you know? It, it works in the sense that it's keeping the human race reproducing and carrying on so far, but it can be very much abused. Um, but it was selected for the way that it is. We have to be that attracted to sexual beauty um, for good evolutionary reasons. And the, so all these questions are raised. In the end... <laughs> The only hill that I'm willing to die on here is that the study of religion really must take into account the ethological study of art. That's it. That's the only thing of which I am absolutely certain. Everything else that I say is a kind of investigation of what might happen if that is done um, and what seems to me to be a reliable outcome of that application. Um but, you know, I admit, of course, that I could be wrong in a lot of these things. But it's the beginning, I think, of, of the process that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a, that's a great place to, uh, you know, to leave, 
to leave us uh, here, you know, and and I think that you you make it make a make many great points uh, throughout the book and have in this interview. Uh, well, Brian, thank you so much for for being guests on on the New Books Network. The book is an ethology of religion and art. Belief is behavior. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks very much, Caleb. Um, thanks for your time. You, I really enjoyed responding to your questions. Absolutely, of course. <laughs>